Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. This is Dan Cotter. In today's episode seven, we have a packed podcast. In addition to discussing the BP versus Baltimore case at the Supreme Court on the issue of whether there is federal common law for public nuisance claims arising out of greenhouse gas emissions to support removal. Uh, And then we have three recent corporate cases before the Illinois Supreme Court and the Illinois Appellate Court addressing the alleged breach of fiduciary duties by employees, directors, and corporate officers and the scope of the duty of loyalty of the same. And those three cases are Indec Energy Services, Inc. versus De Podesta before the Illinois Supreme Court, Walworth Investments, LG, LLC versus Mu Sigma, Inc. before the Illinois Appellate Court, 1st District, and Roberts versus Zimmerman before the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District. And then finally, we're going to discuss an interesting case, a cert petition in Mama Joe's versus Sparta Insurance, a very interesting 11th circuit pre-COVID-19 business interruption case that examines state insurance, state regulation of insurance. With that, Pat, let's turn to the first case today, the BP uh, case, the Supreme Court case. And I'm going to talk about uh, this interesting case. It really presents a question of statutory interpretation involving the provision authorizing appellate review of certain remand orders. The relevant provision of Section 1447D authorizes appellate review of a remand order where a ground for removal was the federal officer or civil rights removal statute. And a lot of time was spent, as Pat will talk about, with respect to whether you can remove part of an order. In this case, the mayor and city council of Baltimore, Maryland, filed a claim and sought relief in state court against 26 multinational oil and gas companies, alleging that the companies contributed to and were responsible in part for climate change and that the company's actions caused injury to the city of Baltimore. Two of the companies filed to move the case to federal court, claiming that the issues raised concerned and were governed by federal law. Baltimore filed a motion to remand the case back to state court. They wanted to be in state court. Uh, The district court granted Baltimore's remand request and denied the company's removal request. The companies appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and the court affirmed the district court's ruling, granting Baltimore's remand request. At the court, an issue was the question of the review of an entire order and not just certain issues. Pat, do you want to discuss the oral arguments in Supreme Court uh, hearings that took place recently? Thank you, Dan. And uh, yes, this is uh, quite the case. It is a procedural, uh, it's a procedural cornucopia uh, because we have, we have state law and federal law claims. We have removal procedure we have the distinction between uh, being in state court and federal court and why people want that. We have issues regarding Rule 11. We have policy concerns of both a domestic as well as an international dimension that the Supreme Court has to consider. This is all the kinds of issues and a circuit split that led to it, we I'm sure was part of the reason why the court took the case in the first instance, and that will come to something we talk about when we get to 
the Mama Joe's case as some very creative lawyering. We're going to see when we discuss that, trying to get the court to take this case. So, and, and, and briefly, Pat, Pat, as we've talked about on prior podcasts, you know, defendants in, in, in many instances might want to be in federal court, right? And, and plaintiffs want to be in state court, not all the time, but that's just kind of the dichotomy at play here. And uh, generally a lot of it, fight over it. There is. And uh, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, we're going to talk about that. We'll get there. But I really think it's it, the Supreme Court in any quarter review, it's important to keep in mind that these are courts that are trying, they, they're writing for other cases. They're writing for, to create a policy. And so they are oftentimes looking at issues beyond the one that may be in front of them because they've got to look at what will be the effect of this decision. That's always very important to keep in mind, especially in a case like this that has both domestic and international implications and broad implications for the broader for the wider economy. Right. So, let's get it let's start at the beginning, which is what happened here. As Dan said, the city and county of Baltimore filed a action, a public nuisance action in Maryland State Court against a group of uh, a group of oil and gas producers, energy producers for climate change, particularly because of sea level rise in the Chesapeake Bay. Fine. This continues on a, a number of cases. If you remember the Massachusetts case from 2006, where the Supreme Court held that carbon dioxide was a, a pollutant that could be regulated under the EPA, and then AEP versus Connecticut from 2011, that held that there is a federal, the federal courts control this. The the unsatisfied with those findings, this is another crack at, well, we're going to go under state nuisance law to try to keep ourselves in state court and keep this out of the federal out of federal regulations. So in order to combat that, the uh, energy companies filed a removal petition based upon that they are a federal officer as a basis to remove the case. An extremely thin read. Let's right. Let's be fair. It's an extremely thin read. So we haven't talked about this in detail, but it's important to keep in mind that federal courts are courts of limited jurisdiction. They only have jurisdiction over certain issues, issues that arise under federal law and issues of diversity. This is an issue that uh, they try. Then there's also federal officer, which kind of falls under the arising under jurisdiction. The district court said, you don't have federal officer uh, claims. Go back to state court. So they appealed it. They appealed the remand order. And under 1447, as Dan said, the question becomes, can the Fourth Circuit, which is the circuit, the federal circuit that governs Maryland, can it review the whole remand order? That is both all of the various theories under which they said they belonged in federal court or only the federal officer removal claim. There's a split. The Seventh Circuit, in a case called Jun Hong versus Boeing from 2015, an opinion written by Judge, Judge Easterbrook, a noted textualist, said, order means order. doesn't mean part of the order. It means some of the order. It means order. And that's what the case is about. What does the word order mean? At its right. bottom, it's that. And so that created the conflict. It was noted by the other circuits. The Seventh Circuit apparently stands alone. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. Uh, but 
so then we get to the substance of what are the other things they want the court to look at? And it's federal common law. Now, we will all remember from, from civil procedure, there isn't any federal common law after Erie uh, versus Tompkins. 1938, poof, no federal common law. I've always thought that's kind of absurd. We could spend <laughs> an entire season of a podcast discussing the merits and demerits of Erie. But there For is sure. a federal common law. And, and, a, and a general theory, right, that there is no federal common law, because as you just said, there is federal common law. Exactly. And there is federal <laughs> common law, and we'll give an example that's relevant here, and for those of us that live in Chicago, a case called Illinois versus City of Milwaukee, where there was waste disposal from a wastewater treatment plant in Milwaukee that got discharged into Milwaukee, and it flowed, discharged into Lake Michigan and affected folks in Chicago. And the court said, yeah, that's a federal issue. Well, discharge of CO2 no matter where it occurred, has not only domestic implications, but international implications. So the idea that we're going to have a 50-state patchwork of state nuisance laws related to CO2 emission seems like that's the place where federal common law belongs. And that's the argument of the petitioners here, is that this is something that has to be governed at a federal level, whether it's administrative or, or in the federal courts. There has to be one law. There can't be 50 or more laws on this question. We'll see. Because the first actual question they have to ask is, can they even look at it? Did, did Congress, because Congress controls what the jurisdiction is over the federal courts. They can, with the exception of the original jurisdiction that the, that the, federal, that the Supreme Court has, diversity jurisdiction and other forms of jurisdiction in federal court are made and, and taken away by Congress. Congress controls that, with the exception, as I said, of Article Three things over which the Supreme Court has original jurisdiction, which this case doesn't fall into. Nope. So then why did the defendants, and this is the question Justice Kavanaugh asked, and he asked both petitioner and, and respondent, and didn't get the answers he liked. Why do you want to be in federal court, counsel for petitioner? Why do you want to be in state court, counsel for respondent? And he got what he called legal answers. He wanted a practical answer. He wasn't getting the practical answer. Now, we all know the answer. Right. The answer is because for a variety of reasons, Dalbert in federal court, uh, generally procedures are more rigorous and favored defendants. Uh, and juries are drawn from a wider, you know, so for example, instead of a Cook County jury in state court in Cook County, you're going to draw from the entire Eastern division of the Northern district. So you're going to draw from the Collar counties. You're going to draw from, uh, you're, you're going to draw from the entire area. That's a much more favorable jury pool, as an example to liken it to those of us who are in Chicago. We also saw this question come up in Thornley versus Clearview that we that we looked at. Why do you want to be in state court? Why do you want to be in federal court? We all know the answer. No one apparently wants to just be honest. It's about money. Defendants right. think they're going to go do better in federal court, and plaintiffs think they're going to do better in state court. And in most cases, they're pro both probably right. Uh, but then we have the, so then there's the policy question, not only of who's supposed to make this policy, federal agencies, federal courts, state courts, whoever. But then we have the policy of everybody deciding to make some frivolous uh, claim that they're a federal officer in order to get themselves in federal court in order to review the entirety of the order. And that was a big point made by respondents is if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And the response from the petitioner was, hold it. They're subject to rule 11, number one, which is the rule that governs you can't do frivolous pleadings. And there was a distinction, this very thin distinction between, made between frivolous and meritless. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
I think this case, the federal officer argument was probably more in the category of meritless as opposed to frivolous. So it probably wasn't sanctionable. But the other point that they made, and it's really important for this kind of this kind of high level, big time, uh, high stakes litigation at this level, is that the lawyer for the petitioner in his response in his closing remarks. So this is the, the very end to which there's going to be no response, and oftentimes very little, if any, questioning by the justices at this point in the uh, in the argument. He was able to say, "You're worried about the." the practicalities of people filing these frivolous um, these frivolous removal petitions. Don't worry about it. Take a look at the Defense Research Institute amicus brief that says there's only been six of those in the five years since the uh, Seventh Circuit case that I mentioned. There's no problem here. And that's a very powerful way to use an amicus brief you, uh, and to use it without being able to get the other side to rebut it at a time when the justices aren't likely to ask you questions about it. And you're at least able to get that out into the public. We're talking about it because I didn't read the amicus briefs. I, I know the justices did. I'm sure their clerks did. Uh, and this was an opportunity to put that in their facts. That's what amicus briefs often do. They can say things the parties can't say. And this is one of those things that they were able to say. And it was a brilliant um, use of rebuttal as well. It, it really was on a, a number of issues, a number of questions that the respondent was asked by the various justices. Very good use of rebuttal here. It, 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 it was excellent advocacy by both sides, really. But that was uh, the use of the DRI amicus brief in that way to address a concern he knew was coming. There was no that was not an accident that he brought that up in rebuttal. That was amongst the last things that he said. It may have been the last thing he said. I think it was, and, and it was. It was he left them this idea. There's no problem here, justices. We're going to be okay. The policy, this isn't going to cause a problem. And that's or keep that in mind when you think about appellate courts. These are policy courts, both substantive and procedural. They have to look at these things. The Supreme Court is obviously chiefly involved in making the rules for the federal courts, and this is something that they've. Uh, that they're really looking at. So there's a ton here in this case. Um, I, I, I We barely scratched the surface of it. Dan, I've droned on for long enough. Do you have anything to add to uh, what we want to say about uh, not only a very interesting case, but a really important case, If no matter how this turns out, a really important case? It is an important case, and I think you covered it in my facts and our, our discussion. I think we've covered, like you said, a very limited piece of the case but it'll be an interesting case to watch and we'll make our predictions later about the outcome. With that, we'll take our first break. We're back for our second segment. And the second case today is actually the three-pack of fiduciary cases that we mentioned at the outset. A phrase used by the courts very frequently to describe the fiduciary duty of a corporate officer or director is utmost good faith. Corporate officers and directors as fiduciaries have an obligation to refrain from acting in their own best interest with respect to decisions made in their fiduciary capacity or doing so would conflict with the interest of the corporation or its shareholders. This sometimes arises in facts such as a, a business opportunity that comes their way that could go to the business. Uh, directors owe a duty of care to their corporations as well. This duty requires directors to stay informed about corporate developments and to make informed decisions. 
In addition, directors and officers owe the corporation a duty of loyalty. This duty mandates that the best interest of the corporation take precedence over any personal interest the director may have or officer. For example, directors cannot compete with the corporation or usurp a, a corporate opportunity for personal gain. With that brief background, Pat, why don't you tell us about the first case index? Index. Thanks, Dan. Um, this first case really, I want to deals with whether there is a separate cause of action for a breach of fiduciary duty or a usurpa- versus a usurpation of a corporate opportunity. The Indec case is a, Indec is a energy company that runs uh, a variety of energy projects around the world. Um, and ga- gas, natural gas, and other kinds of uh, power power facilities around the world. And two of their officers, I think it's two of their officers, left uh, and to com- and took what the what the plaintiffs claimed was an opportunity to run some gas fired plants down in Texas with Merced Energy. They created their own entity, and the trial court found that they had breached their fiduciary duty and ordered them to disgorge their salaries for the period of time during which they had were still working ostensibly for INDEC, but had didn't have this highest duty of loyalty to their They were business development guys, and they're out developing their own business. Uh, you can't right. do that, it turns out. But the question was, did they do a separate thing of usurp a corporate opportunity? Or is that separate? And that's really the question that's being asked. The trial court held that it was... They, the plaintiff had not proved that it was separate. The appellate court reversed, and that's the question presented to the Supreme Court in a situation because it ju- their argument is it can't be that it's just a duplication of the of the fiduciary duty claim. It's got to be something separate because there's additional remedies that are available for this usurpation claim. And was a, and then the questions become: Was a corporate opportunity actually usurped? Uh, could they have taken? Was there actually an opportunity? Could could index still have taken advantage of the opportunity? All of these kinds of things. So they go into this situation already having been found and not appealing. It seems that they that they breached their fiduciary duty. Do they also uh, usurp a corporate opportunity? Uh, and with that, uh, Dan is going to tell us about the second case, which is Walworth uh, versus uh, Sigma Mu. Uh, before the first district. Thanks, Pat. And Walworth was an interesting case. Uh, Pat Ryan, the founder of Aon and Ryan Specialty Group, uh, has an investment vehicle, Walworth, that he alleged was swindled out of millions by a company, uh, Sigma Mu, that rep- misrepresented growth. Uh, there was arguments about Delaware law, and that uh, petitioner argued and alleged it was a bad interpretation of Delaware law. The case was interesting because at the beginning, there was a request that the comment be made that there are significant items under seal and that remain under seal. And so the oral argument was not under seal so that all of the participants had to be very careful in how they went about uh, arguing the case and, and not disclosing facts. And, and Walworth, uh, similar to uh, the, the case that Pat talked about, it, it was looking at fiduciary duties. And what happened here was, uh, as mentioned, Walworth had invested in in the company, uh, Mu Sigma. And uh, at some point, the founder and CEO of the company, Rajaram, informed 
uh, Walworth that the investment was uh, starting to be a slow growth and that there were no longer upsides. There was a stock repurchase plan uh, between Walworth and uh, the company. And it turns out there were emails and other things from the CEO to the CFO talking about uh, what a great uh, transaction that the emails and uh, push to have Walworth sell back their shares uh, was not uh, w- was not too too pushy, but it had accomplished the goal. One of the interesting things that came up in here, and there's a lot of talk about Delaware law and about if this uh, if this were in fact how uh, the court might rule. Uh, there was talks about disclosures and full disclosures, uh, statements and parts of the settlement agreement that had been stricken that talked about disclosures and reliance. Justice Lavin, who was one of the panelists, uh, brought up a very interesting question. He was talking about sophisticated plaintiffs, sophisticated uh, defendants, as was the case here. And he referred to uh, Mu Sigma and the instance here of perhaps a reverse Madoff that uh, in Madoff, they're making tons of money and spending it. In this case, the company was not really a home run. You should get out of this one. And at the same time, patting themselves on the back. And so it was a very interesting line of questioning. And I'm not sure that the uh, advocate was able to sufficiently uh, hit that that ball back back to Justice Lavin. And so an interesting question of, of uh, disclosures and, and how much reliance a beneficiary can take on the, on the fiduciary's comments and statements and disclosures. And with that, I'll bring it back to you, Pat, for Roberts, the third case in the package. Before we move on, I want to make sure people understand when we're talking about sophisticated people, Pat Ryan's amongst the wealthiest people in Illinois. You don't get more sophisticated than him. And it wasn't like they lost money on this deal. They made uh, eight or nine, they made a million dollar investment and and they took back 9.3 million. But had they held on to their stock, this this company, uh, Moo Sigma, I, I called it Sigma Moo. Uh, was referring to the to the uh, fraternal organization. Um, <laughs> their their shares would have been worth multiples of the nine point three million had they held on right. to them. And right. there was this big issue about non reliance and under under Delaware law whether you can say you didn't rely on statements of Rajaram in the documents and then say I relied upon the statements or non statements, which is really the claim right. of Rajaram in 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 entering into this stock buyback situation. So and it's a it, fascinating case because of uh, just because of the dynamics here, and because of the whole instance of there's emails that were very gloating the day after the deal was signed with the CFO saying, "Hey, this was brilliant, and you know you weren't too aggressive and too pushy, but you accomplished the objective." And so we'll see. And, and I and I think Justice Lavin also made the an hour. Maybe one of the justices talked about you could have the hard con and you can have the soft con. Wasn't this really more in the soft con right. uh, category? Uh, <laughs> but a con nonetheless is the suggestion. So right. it, you know uh, you want to play poker with Justice Lavin maybe uh, because he, <laughs> he he you know he he seemed to have tipped his hand. Now maybe I'm wrong, but uh, he he seemed to have tipped his hand is what he thought. Let's move on to the next case, Roberts versus Zimmerman, another very strange business arrangement uh, where there is this wood company, uh, Lumber. So we've gone from energy to information, which is what Moose Sigma is involved in, now to Lumber. And back in 1986, the outstanding Lumber 
gave about eight hundred and some thousand dollars plus a whole bunch of other compensate a whole bunch of other consideration to this company, uh, Owl, to market lumber. And in exchange for that, they agreed to pay uh, a, what's called the Paxton price, which apparently is uh, a price of for very high end lumber. And it's 23%. It was it has the profit built in about 23% higher than the market. Well, an officer of the company who was the lumber manager, his family created a company to sell the lumber to Owl. But he could so they sold the money, the company the lumber to the company he created called uh Lake uh, City. Lake City. And then Lake City would turn around and then mark it up and sell it to Owl. Lake, it was done on a on a dropship type situation. So, and the claim was is that well we could do this because they had agreed to pay the Paxton price, and the court the trial court they had they had prevailed below, and there was both a breach of fiduciary duty claim against the officer who did this, as well as aiding and abetting claims against the. The husband or the uh, husband and wife who were the fu- who were the parents of the lumber manager, uh, and so there's the, they're the, uh, assisting in this fidu- breach of fiduciary duty claim, and so the question really is: Are the, well, just because you're going to have this relationship where where they're going to be the outstanding is going to be the primary supplier, but not the exclusive provider of lumber? What does that mean? And does it mean you, you're allowed to s- sell it at this inflated price to everybody? Uh, do you have to pay that price? All kinds of issues regarding calculation of damages, the meaning of these provisions, whether this is a breach of fiduciary duty at all, um, the claim that didn't seem to get a whole lot of traction that he was acting as a broker and broker services are worth money. He's going, broker, in, in rebuttal, counsel for the plaintiff appellant said, hold it, broker, he's the lumber manager. That's right. his job. Right. Uh, what are you talking about, broker? Right. Uh, and so that, but the rebuttal to that was, well, they couldn't get the lumber from everybody else. The plaintiff at trial apparently brought in either at least affidavits, if not evidence depositions that said that the seven suppliers that they were using all said they would sell them at the price lower than the Paxton price to which the defendant Apple said, well, of course they said that you're going to, who's going to say anything otherwise that doesn't, that doesn't carry any weight. So there was a, there were a lot of back and forth about the evidence and because this is a manifest way to the evidence standard uh, with regards to the trial judge, uh, Judge Wheaton from DuPage, with regards to her findings, this appeared to be a bench trial, not a jury trial, uh, as fiduciary duty claims often are. So we had mentioned in an episode one of the podcast about the standard of review. This is one of those cases where standard review is going to play a very big role. And apparently there was a lot of reference to findings that Judge Wheaton made about things she found lacking in the plaintiff's presentation and things she didn't see that she thought should have been there. So this kind of, all of these are slightly different aspects of breaches of fiduciary duty uh, that office, corporate officers, directors uh, might owe. And it'd be very interesting to see how these turn out um, given the various there, there's bad conduct all around in each of these cases on their on their face. It seems like there's bad conduct, at least in the index case, it was found to have been bad conduct. Uh, and it seemed that the justices at least thought that there was some bad conduct, both in the Walworth and in the Roberts cases. Dan, uh, before we go to break, uh, do you have anything else to add about uh, these uh, these three corporate cases? Uh, 
I think, as you said, I think there's bad conduct on various uh, areas in these cases. And what I would say is that we see this a lot in closely held corporations. We see it in family or friends that start businesses. You know, I've been uh, retained in, in many instances when I've been in private practice over the years. And even when I've been in house on cases very similar where there's accusations that an officer or director has a side thing, right? They're doing something else. Uh, many of these uh, folks, you know, have investment vehicles and they got their own kind of private arms that they're private capital. And so it gets very murky. Is that an opportunity for the corporation? Have they uh, violated their duties of loyalty and care? So I think it'll be interesting to see how these cases come out. And it's important to note that just because it may seem that there's bad conduct doesn't mean it's necessarily legally actionable. And right. also, also we're basing it on, you know, what we hear in the oral argument. And, and it's, 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 uh, it just because it doesn't look good doesn't mean that there, that there was actually anything legally incorrect. Uh, and so with that, we'll, we'll go to break and we'll be back for our third segment in a minute. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're back for our third segment uh, of the Podium and Panel Podcast, and now we're going to talk about a cert petition, which is a request of the Supreme Court of the United States to take a case. Uh, and with that, uh, Dan's going to tell us about Mama Joe's versus Sparta Insurance. Can't make up this name. Uh, no. Dan, take it away. Thank you, Pat. And, and Mama Joe's was doing business as Barry's, and I don't know what kind of restaurant it is, but in any event, it was in Miami. It's an interesting petition for cert that raises questions on direct physical loss and trying to get a circuit split, as Pat talked about earlier with the BB, BP case, where there's circuit splits. Oftentimes, the resort is to go to the Supreme Court to get consistency or to resolve that dispute. But what's at issue here, and the brief never mentions it, the petition for cert that was filed by Mama Joe's, there's a huge elephant in the room when it comes to insurance policy interpretation, and that is the McCarran-Ferguson Act that exempts the business of insurance from most federal re regulation. The act passed in 1945 in response to a decision of the Supreme Court, United States versus Southeastern Underwriters Association, which held that the Sherman Act applied to insurance, and Congress almost immediately turned to the McCarran-Ferguson Act to say, nah, uh, when it comes to antitrust and when it comes to most regulation of insurance at the federal level, uh, the states have control. We'll see if the court grants cert. Uh, the petition itself is very interesting, and if the court did take it and address these issues, it would be very important for these COVID-19 business interruption cases that uh, Pat and I are aware of, and many of you may be aware of, that are uh, promulgating across the country at state and federal courts and droves. So the petition notes the issue. The central question in this matter is what constitutes physical damage to property for the purposes of triggering coverage under an all-risk insurance policy. And amongst the jurisdictions, it's generally agreed that an all-risk insurance policy covers all fortuitous direct and physical losses that are not specifically excluded or limited. 
Uh, the circuit courts are also split as to what constitutes direct physical loss, and that's what the Mama Joe's petition is seeking to have resolved by the Supreme Court. In the underlying case, the 11th Circuit found that the provision for direct and physical losses excluded coverage for items needing cleaning but not replacement, such as sophisticated awning systems in this case, and there was roadwork construction in Miami that impacted the restaurant back in like 2013 through 2015, a lot of dust and dirt that impacted the ability of Mama Joe's to be clean and to be able to uh, fully operate their, their restaurant business. You don't want to eat your berries covered in dust is, right. is essentially the idea. And so it right. caused you know business interruption, which is money you get from an insurance company in the event your business is interrupted because of some, for some loss or damage to your property. And that right. just so folks understand what these things are which have obviously been a big deal in this COVID-19 litigation, uh, does the virus getting into your business constitute a direct physical loss when the virus sits on the door handles or on the surfaces inside that that's where this comes from and how they tried to tie it in. So, And just, um, to, just to show you this, the decision at the 11th Circuit was in August 18, 2020. It came out and the petitioner uh, in their brief mentions that at the time the 11th Circuit issued the opinion, this question, as Pat just noted, affects hundreds of thousands of policyholders potentially. And as of the date of the petition, so four or five months ago, that 11th Circuit opinion that said that cleaning does not constitute physical loss has been cited in over 50 briefs directed towards COVID-19 claims. So it's a significant question. There's a split. The first, second, eighth, and tenth circuits have held in favor of coverage for policyholders, given the term a more expansive definition. On the other side, the 3rd, 5th, 6th, 7th, ninth, and 11th circuits have held in favor of the insurers, given the term a more narrow definition against coverage. And there's also uh, Daubert issues. But this is going to be an interesting case to see if the court grants cert. Uh, as we will discuss shortly, this might be an issue of our rule of the week. And Pat, you want to talk a little bit about whether you think the, the court will take this case and your thoughts. Dan, thank you for that excellent uh, exposition of, of this. And it's, as we talked about earlier, Supreme Court only, ta only takes cases typically that present circuit splits or present significant policy questions. And what the, what the petitioners have tried to do here is to articulate both, both to articulate a, Split of a split of uh, authority, which Dan just talked about. There's a real split, and then whether it's there's an issue of national import. This COVID, this COVID nineteen cases, they want to have the Supreme Court decide this issue, and then you have a federal procedural question, application of Dalbert, which is the case that deals with uh, how experts and whether experts can testify in the in the district court's role as gatekeeper, and that's one of the reasons why defendants oftentimes like to be in federal court. Now this is very clever lawyering. They they are throwing they are throwing it all out there. I don't think it's ultimately going to be successful because the split is on an issue of state law, as Dan mentioned. The split really needs to be on a question of federal law. And if you look at the cert petition, one of the questions that that they are required to put in a cert petition is, does this have a constitutional dimension to it? And they had to because they were being honest. There's not a constitutional dimension. I can't remember the last insurance, straight insurance case that the Supreme Court took. The last in case that did touch on insurance that I can recall is a case called Sveen versus Mellon. That wasn't an insurance case. It was a con contract clause case. Did the 
contracts clause of or was the contracts clause of the federal constitution violated by a provision of Minnesota law that restricted who the beneficiaries were and the ability to change the beneficiaries of a policy of life insurance. And that was a very common kind of claim that used to be made with some frequency, not so much anymore, especially in view of what Dan talked about with regards to the McCarran-Ferguson Act and allowing states to do this. Now, many states have their own contracts clause and their state constitutions, but that doesn't present a question, a federal question. That presents a question of state law. And I really, I, I handle, Dan and I both handle a fair number of insurance type matters, both in state and federal court, both for insurers and insurance. Uh, and when you get, when you have one in federal court, I pretty much think the Seventh Circuit is the end of the road. At no point have I thought I'm getting some interpretation to the Supreme Court. That is a waste of, I, I generally speaking, would be a waste of a client's money unless we can come up with some constitutional issue. Um in, in federal court, the Seventh Circuit is, or whatever your circuit in, you're in, is usually the end of the road because there's just not a federal question presented that's going to interest the Supreme Court. Now, they've tried very hard here. And they and again, I give them a ton of credit for the effort here. I, I don't think they're going to be successful, but it's a very interesting brief. And for those that handle matters in this area, I commend the brief to you. It's available on SCOTUS blog uh, under uh, in Mama Joe's versus uh, Sparta Insurance. You can find it online. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a very interesting brief. And as I said, I commend it to you, those that practice in this area. Uh, it's got a very good synopsis of the law and is a very, very well-written brief. I don't know if it'll be, I don't think it's going to be successful, but it's a very well-written brief. And it's, for obvious reasons, it has an, issues of national import, which may intrigue some on the court. Remember, they only have to get four people four of the four of the nine to agree to take a case. I, I don't think they're going to make it, but that's all they need is four. They don't need five to take a case. I don't think so um, either. So uh, with that, Dan, uh, do we want to go to uh, predictions sure to go wrong? I think so. And I think we've already made the predictions on, on this case, Mama Joe. So uh, on the BP case, what do you think is going to happen with that? I, I think the conservative majority is going to exercise its, its uh, weight and I, I, I'll even give you a number. Uh, it's going to be at least five four. With, with perhaps Roberts will join with the um, with the more liberal members, but I, I more think six three in favor of keeping this case in federal court. And you may even get Justice Kagan to come over, uh, and, and perhaps Justice Breyer, who also expressed some concern about this. And if you, the AEP versus Connecticut case, written by Justice Ginsburg was an 8-0. I forget who the justice was that didn't participate, but uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority in the 2011 AEP case. You may get all, it may be 9-0. I I really think the petitioners have both a strong textual argument as well as extremely strong policy arguments why this case belongs in in, in federal court. And so- a further erosion of Erie may not be may may not be a bad thing for those of us that aren't a big fan of it. And, and it was interesting at one point. I think it was uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, that mentioned uh, when you're up against the uh, Justice Ginsburg decision, especially on procedural, uh, you've got a very uphill battle to to climb. That's a tall mountain to to march up. And so I think you're right. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the numbers are. It could be a it could be a unanimous decision. I think. 
but it's always hard to tell, right? Because again, in oral arguments, a lot of the justices try to ask questions of both sides and probing questions. Uh, but I think you're right. I think it's going to be at least a five, four, six, three, maybe seven, two, eight, one, maybe a nine, zero. I, I just don't see uh, this case going the other way. I don't see five votes going the other way. Um, and 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 you, you make an excellent point about Justice Ginsburg and procedure. For those that are that don't follow the Supreme Court, she was you know she obviously gets lionized for uh, for her opinions on social issues that get a lot of attention. But for those of us that follow procedure, she was the dean of federal civil procedure. And this is a case that is right down, right up the road of federal civil procedure. And uh, you you better be on the right side of, of Justice Ginsburg when it comes to federal civil procedure, because that was one area where she was the the uh, um, the, the, the maven of, of that particular area of the law. Um and then, so let's go to the uh, fiduciary duty cases, um, starting with INDEC. Uh, is the Supreme Court going to going to clarify this, and and uh, what, what's it going to do here? I hope the Supreme Court clarifies. And uh, I really, listening to all the arguments, you know, I don't have a strong opinion of where it's going to go. Maybe maybe you have a better insight, Pat. But clarification would be good here. As Dan mentioned in our last podcast, episode six, the, the Illinois Supreme Court's cold bench. And this is one of the things that makes it very hard. Um, I, I think the policy here, though, and it was made very strong by the, by the respondent, uh, the plaintiffs below, is that you can't have people able to get around this by simply saying there wasn't a, a corporate uh, opportunity that was usurped and some kind of technicality. Now, I, I, I don't think that's correct. I, I think that there has to be a separate cause of action. So I think they're going to rule in favor of the defendants, and then they may give a, a standard that may be able to find that the defendants did something wrong uh, with regards to the corporate, uh, the usurpation of the corporate opportunity. I think um, that's right. How about uh, how about Walworth, Dan? Uh, is Justice Lavin uh, tipped his hand with regards to the, what the other two justices think? I think he has, uh, but as you and I talked uh, before starting the podcast, uh, he very much uh, is is a very he doesn't let his preferences get in the way of the opinion. He goes where the the law is. But I do think I do think he raises interesting questions, and I think I think uh, Mu Sigma has some issues here, and in, in trying to address you know the the uh, disclosures and, and non reliance. Uh, especially in this case where Section 3 of the contract, they struck out language about reliance upon certain disclosure or non. And the petitioner was very clear in this case. She said it's not a case of reliance. It's a case of uh, misrepresenting what you've or not producing the facts from which the other side can make a decision. You know, offsetting that in this case is the interesting fact that, again, the plaintiff here is not uh, by any means unsophisticated, one of the most sophisticated investors around. And so that might be the, the biggest challenge in this particular case. Agreed. And uh, I, I think that uh, that said, I, I think that the the petitioners probably got the better part of the argument. I, I think yeah. that they, uh, but hard to predict what an Illinois court's going to do with Delaware law. Um, I, I agree. I don't know if certification is available in this particular context with regards to the Delaware law, but that might be something they take a look at. And petitioner was very clear on that too, saying, look, 
if, if you rule this way, then it's going to be an outlier and Delaware law is going to be so peculiar that it doesn't make any sense. And for those that are unfamiliar, Delaware law is the place for corporate law, even at the trial level, trial level opinions, ch- their chancellors there are very powerful opinions and, and looked at throughout the country as uh, the chancery bench there is extremely well ex- respected around the country. Uh, the last case is Roberts, which I think it was a rough ride for the uh, defendant's uh, respondents uh, at the oral argument. Uh, Justice McLaren in particular gave the uh, respondents a tough time with some of the arguments that they were advancing. I expect a reversal in, uh, in, in, in some form in, in, with regards to Roberts. There's a lot of issues we didn't get into and some, compli- some procedural complications uh, with regards to jurisdiction. But uh, I, I expect some a reversal of some variety in favor of the plaintiff petitioner or plaintiff appellant uh, out of that case. I agree. I agree. The facts here are just not very favorable to the defendants here. Nor is the language of the agreement. Right. Um, Very true. And that brings us to the rule of the week. Uh, And and it's not really a rule, as it turns out. Uh, Sometimes the Supreme Court looks at a case and says, we shouldn't have taken this case. And that's called a dig. Uh, And you'll hear that referred to in arguments sometimes. What's a dig? dismissed as improvidently granted. And that's what the Supreme Court did recently in a case called Shine Inc. versus Archer and White Sales, which is a really important case if they had decided it. Uh, I'm going to link to my post on LinkedIn with regards to that decision. This was the second time the case had been to the appellate, to the Supreme Court, which is an accomplishment in itself. It is. It's over. They've been fighting over eight years. <laughs> Over an arbitration clause. Right. And then it gets digged. So, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's, an, it's a quote opinion. That's one sentence per curium. The case is dismissed as improvidently granted. In other words, we never should have taken this case. Sorry to waste all your time, folks. See you later is essentially what that means. It's a, Dan, it's a very interesting tool that the Supreme Court uses. And in the same uh, list of orders in, the, in that week, they also dismissed the emoluments cases. Uh, they ran out the clock and then said that those were moot. And they used the vacator uh, ruling, which is very similar as well. Like, okay, we granted certain these cases, but now they're moot. So we direct the uh, appellate courts to we remand with instructions to dismiss as moot is no longer by happenstance. The facts no longer are in question. And so you mean when the president is no longer the president, you can't come after him for a violation of the emoluments clause. Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, this uh, this court, uh, there was some discussion on LinkedIn uh, about uh, Moe's and, and, you know, the cases that are granted cert. Uh, The Roberts court is is much slower uh, and has a much lower, uh, smaller docket than the Rehnquist court. Uh, That's a trend that's been going on for decades at the court in terms of cases granted cert and actual substantive arguments. And this is uh, examples of how they dispose of some of those cases to uh, get rid of some things in their docket that they do uh, not want to address, or as you said, you know, that they dig it. And uh, probably nothing worse if you're the advocates to get a one sentence. You have no clue of why it was improvidently granted, but there you have it. 
and, and we've gone a little long in this segment, but I, I, I think that that trend that Dan talks about, there were only, what, 54 signed opinions the last term. And some of that obviously had to do with the co- with COVID. And some of those cases have been kicked over to this term. And we'll see a pickup from, from that because they had to take that break for about two or three months in argument. So that slowed things down. But you're right. They have gone gone longer. But with the, the majority now where Roberts is no longer the swing vote, and as we mentioned, you only need four votes to take a case, I think you may see an upswing. And when and whereas Roberts was in the majority, I think all but one case last term, yep. he's going to find himself not in that position. And when he's not in that position, the most senior justice who is in the majority, which may often be Justice Thomas, assigns the writing. So you get a much different flavor for how things shake out, who's going to be writing the opinions. The chief, both in his role as chief and as and as swing justice, put him in a self in an extraordinarily strong position on the court. But that with the appointment of Barrett, that position has changed substantially with regards to the the sway that the on the those kind of procedural nuts and bolts that Chief Justice Roberts will be able to exert though he obviously still remains chief. Correct. Ideologically, he's in a much different position than he was uh, prior to Barrett's uh, appointment and confirmation. So with that, uh, thank you everybody for joining us and we look forward to seeing everybody next week. Take care. I'm Dan Cotter. And on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.